So what? Mm-hmm. Oh, so what's the the significance of Jovadia? Jovadia, yeah, yeah. It's um. So my actual first uh, last name is Patel, yeah, which is like our family name. But Patel is kind of like an umbrella name for a whole. In India, we have uh, castes, as you probably might know about. But caste was traditionally used to describe people's uh, like status, as in their work or what they did or you know their family background so Patel I think is the farming caste like they were farmers and maybe landowners I'm not sure um but I feel like it's not really personal and we have per we have family names as well as those but we just don't use them as our actual name so my dad's family name is Jorvadia and my mum's family name is Limbasia and I think it's just, it feels a lot more, I feel a lot more connected to those names than I do to Patel. And I kind of wish it was my actual name. So I just changed it to that. I love it. I think it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's a really nice I name. It, so. It's difficult to pronounce, but I I remember it being used a lot when we were little. When we were little. And my mum's family, they still all call themselves Limbasia. So Yeah. I I think it, it, but it also tells a little bit more of your story, and it shows, uh, just like that that pride of on of your of your heritage. Yeah, exactly. And I think also when people were often when people were emigrating, and when they were moving overseas, they would just kind of be banded together in these names that they wouldn't necessarily have identified with, but it was just easier to, it's also an easy way to categorize people. Um, so, so yeah, I, I never really felt particularly connected to Patel. So it's nice to, I was a bit worried initially, I didn't want to change my name to Chorvadia because I, I was like, oh, it's difficult to, for people to pronounce. And it's a bit of a mouthful and it's quite long but now I just think you just have to do what feels right and if if it's difficult for people then that's kind of not you know they have to it's not really my problem exactly they have to <laughs> make not, the effort not in a horrible way but you know no for sure no they, and it's good that you know like if they care they will make an effort you know Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I, I which I like know. people wouldn't really use that name very often anyway, even when they're speaking about you. So, well, I love it. I've always been intrigued by the stories of people in the jewelry industry who make these items, what inspires them, and brings them to this world. I'm here to share their stories. This is a thousand facets. Giovanni Jo Badia creates sculptural fine jewelry, expressing the tension between a modern minimalist aesthetic and the richness found in her British Indian bicultural heritage. She is pushed by a desire to uncover what lies at the boundaries where the classic and orthodox meet. I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Hi, Giovanni. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? I'm really good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, you know, it's it's starting to get sunny today, so that's good. It was yet very rainy yesterday. Uh so I first um found your work online. I really love the 
striking, like very modern, very clean lines of your work. And then you have like this fabulous stone surrounded by this very um, geometric metal around it. And I, I love that. And uh, we talked a little bit online, I, I believe um, you were part of the Max Danger little group Decimus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember the name oh, <laughs> yes. uh, for a little bit. And then when I went to London a few years ago, we met when you were showing at Goldsmith Fair. Yes. And I really love your personality. I love uh, who you are as a person and we connected and and I feel like we bonded on different things. We bonded on, on clothing and clothing making and yeah. uh, social issues and food because you post sometimes incredible food and embroideries and just like beauty. Like we like yeah. so, sometimes you post like something beautiful and I comment on it and vice versa. And then we end up like having these long conversations. Yeah. You're one of my train partners. You did you talk to me while I'm on the train? Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> and I always love that. Um, so I, you know, I where so where do you grow up? So I grew up in a city called Leicester in the UK. And um I was raised and lived there till I was about 12. Um, and it was just an amazing place to grow up. You might not know this, but um, Leicester is, I think, over 50% ethnic minority, which for the UK is pretty unusual. Really? And most of the ethnic, well, ethnic minority population is um, South Asian. And there's also an Afro-Caribbean community there as well. Oh, wow. But it, it was an amazing place to grow up because it just felt, I felt very at home and I felt very normal there and I didn't feel different at all. And we were surrounded by our family, like my grandparents lived there. Um, my parents have a massive sort of social circle. So we were always around people um, and the food, it's like being in a mini India part of Leicester is. Um, so yeah, I loved it. And then when we were 12, I moved out to the middle of the countryside and that was a completely opposite experience <laughs> and kind of a kind of a weird age to move but um yeah so that informed a lot of growing up I think that change oh I can imagine um so your grandparents came from India to the to the United Kingdom or what's the generation no, it was a bit of a it was a bit of a windy roundabout journey so my 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 mum's side of the family my granddad was actually born in Uganda and hit and also on my dad's side of the family my granddad I think he was born in Uganda as well and my parents were born in Uganda so there was a really big South Asian population in Uganda oh wow the British when they colonized India brought lots of Indians over to East Africa to work on the railways initially and then more people started coming over from India and there ended up being a huge population there and they weren't you know after a certain amount of time they weren't working on the railways and they just built their own communities and I think a lot of them were business people just like in India and um, yeah so there was a huge community there and so my parents grew up there and 
moved over to the UK when they were teenagers because in the early 70s, um, Idi Amin came into power in Uganda and he gave the Asians an ultimatum and they all had to leave the country within 30 days. So my my dad, my dad's family had come over just before that, but my mum's were um, my mum's family came over as refugees. My mum was 13 years old then. So they came to the UK. Oh wow. Um, yeah. So so and was the you know what was memories that your mom has had from being a refugee? Like did you did she talk to you about she does talk to me about it and um she actually this is so such an alien thing to think now because of the treatment of refugees coming over to the UK now the experience mm-hmm. is so different um but at that time i guess cuz she was young enough to not um necessarily catch the hostility from local people but they actually moved, they were put straight into a refugee camp in Devon when they moved here. And I think they lived there for about six months, four or six months or something. And she loved it there. Like her experience of being in that place was she just absolutely loved it. Because I guess they were all pretty much mostly Asians that were put there. So they were part of like, they felt part of a community. And her dad was a real kind of community leader. And he was like this in Uganda as well. And he was out there finding like jobs for people and kind of bringing people together and setting up um, like community events. And he was um, trying to house people as well. I think he was part of that. Um, And my mum said that she remembers like the canteen that they used to go to. And she remembers all the old ladies that used to cook for them, like the English old ladies that used to cook for them. And she said they were so lovely. She loved it. But um, yeah it's just it's it's kind of strange to think of that now because it's changed so much but yeah for sure and is there's like you know I, I'm happy that she had a positive experience you know like that's like very different from things that are happening right now but yeah. like but it just informs so much of me imagine like her you know like her reaction to the British people and like just being there feeling feeling welcome and feeling like at home yeah, yeah, I think that must make such a big difference. I'm sorry that they had like a little bit of a unorthodox journey in a way. Yeah, yeah, I know. My, I mean, my my grandparents. I think it was obviously really traumatic for them. And my grandma still says, you know, the best days of her life were in Uganda. They had such a good, like, happy life there, and they really loved it. And I think it truly felt like home to them. And I think. For the older generations, and maybe even for my parents' generation, and I think even slightly for my generation as well, it, you don't. This doesn't completely feel like home. Yeah. Still, um, it's a funny thing, home. Yeah. So, how did they end up in in Leicester? Um, there were a few places where most of the Asians were just relocated to, and Northampton was. Actually, my parents' family went to Northampton, which is not far from Leicester. Mm-hmm. And um, my dad's family had already moved to Leicester anyway. But there was there was already, I guess, with immigrant communities, they tend to go where there are other people that they know yeah. where they already have family. So um, lots of Asians were placed in Northampton, but a lot more were placed in Leicester. And I guess it's just because they had maybe more housing there that was available. Um yeah. And I, I know that I, I've read some newspaper articles from the time. It, 
in Leicester. And I know that a lot of people were really against it, but um, yeah, I guess that's just where they were placed. So yeah. that's where they went. And and where do you move from like after you left Leicester? Where where was that move to? We moved to a really small little town in Shropshire in the countryside, kind of not far from Wales, called Ludlow. Ludlow. It's a really it's a really beautiful um medieval town and there's a, a a castle there and a lot of people come there to visit as tourists because it's so pretty but it was <laughs> just such a stark contrast we us I think our my parents moved there because um my uncle my dad's brother unfortunately got cancer and he had a news agent which he was running which he owned and um my parents bought it off him so that they could kind of sell it quickly and because he was really unwell and then I think the plan was for them to just move back to Leicester but once we got settled down in school and stuff they just decided to to stay there um and I think our family and there was another Asian family that owned a news agent as well and we were the only Indian people in the whole town oh wow yeah how was that like can you tell me a little bit of that experience It was horrible to be honest. <laughs> oh, sorry. Lots of it questions. Was, I think when you're when you're really young, well, I guess whatever you grow up with is your normal. And as you become a teenager, you just become intensely aware about your differences because you're always wanting to fit into things. Mm -hmm. And I think at that age, because I was 12, I was just so aware of how different I was compared to everyone else around. And I just felt like I didn't fit in. Yeah. I was just really intensely aware of that. And I felt like people were looking at me all the time. And I don't know if they were, and they probably were at that time, but I don't know. I just think it was, um, yeah, it was a funny time, but I made really good friends and they're still like my best friends today. Yeah. Um, so it, And as I grew up, as I grew older, I I came to love the place as well. And I do really love it. And I guess because our family were there, it was it became home after a while. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm glad that you found your <laughs> groove there. If it if it makes you feel better. Um I grew up in a place where we are all the same and we're still I was still mm -hmm. the odd child and I still <laughs> the oddball and I, you know, I never felt you know there <laughs> yeah yeah I know it's a funny thing like the whole idea of home isn't it and what met you know what is home to you it's where do you feel at home is it a place is it a feeling is it the people that you're with is it yeah your culture like I have to say like it it's really like people sometimes don't understand but I do feel really at home in London when mm. I go but it's yeah. because of all of you guys like you make me feel so at home like yeah. I'm always welcome there like I always feel that there's a space for me there so yeah. it makes me feel very good every time that I go there it's oh, like nice. the highlight of my year is just going to London and just feeling that warmth of the yeah people. yeah and I think I think home is definitely more about people than anything yeah. else yeah 100 percent. yeah um so going moving to jewelry do you have a first memory of jewelry um I can't I can think of first memories from when I was a little bit older but I think being part growing up in an Indian family 
jewelry has just always been a part of my life. We were going to weddings all the time. My mum loves jewelry. And she would always, before before we went to weddings or when it was Diwali time or, you know, a special occasion, she would get out her jewellery, the sets. So all the jewellery would always be like a set and you'd have like a big, gorgeous gold necklace with loads of really ornate detail. And she would get out the matching earrings and the matching bracelets and um, all the different bangles. She had a, a ribbon with literally hundreds of bangles just uh, and a lot of them weren't gold they were just you know some of them were just plastic or whatever metal and they were just all tied up with this big ribbon that I remember and um yeah I think jewelry was just always around and then I remember when she was a little bit older she got out some jewelry that she had when she was younger and it was silver jewelry that she wore as more fashion jewelry but she had a silver belt from the 70s which was really cool and she used to keep it in this purple box full of talcum powder because apparently that stops it from um tarnishing so it does actually work um and she just had this big silver belt which I've got now and I don't think I've ever worn it and uh, (laughs) and she had all of her silver bracelets in there as well um yeah I love that I I I I just love I, I would love to go through all everybody's jewelry box from their, yeah. their history because everything ha- carries so much history, especially like Indian jewelry is just like there's so much like l- like it's like locks and like it just feels special and it just has like so much um meaning. Like I yeah. just feel like um Indian jewelry, like when you wear the sari, when you wear every, uh, it just like, yeah. it just looks so, it's that out of like a movie or something like that <laughs> yeah it totally is yeah and it's such a part of our culture as well and it's such a part of even everyday life um you know like my grandma always had um her her nose piercing she always had earrings in her ears and I remember one I think I only met my great-grandmother one time she was really I remember thinking she looked about 200 years old she was so old and she was so tiny and really wrinkly and she came to visit my grandma when we were really little and I remember because um often Indian women would wear really heavy earrings in their ears as well and I remember that she had an she had I don't think she had any earrings in but her earlobes were almost down to her shoulders (laughs) I remember they they were so long and she had this huge long um, hole in her ear and I just remember being really fascinated by by or yeah by older people and the jewelry that they would wear and how that changed over time as well I love it um I I have a question because I, I think I know the story but like can you tell me a little bit about the nose ring what's like the significance of it um well often it was something that girls would wear once they were married mm-hmm. but I feel like a, there's a bit of a lack of connection with that I think because my parents had moved because my grandparents had moved away and we I guess we they weren't brought up in India and maybe the culture was slightly different but um I and then it just became a decorative thing I guess just yeah. ornate decoration like any other jewelry but I remember a story that my grandma told when my mum 
when my mum was little and my dad and my granddad had gone out, my grandma pierced my mum's nose with a needle <laughs> when she was little. And um, my granddad came back and shouted at her and was really angry about it because he said my mum was too young and made her take it out. Um, and then my mum never got her nose pierced again after that. But it's such an Indian, it's such an Indian thing. It's such a marker of Indian culture, I think. And I know other cultures do have it as well but I always think the nose piercing is such a yeah it's, it's a staple it's definitely yeah it's an identifier for sure and I yeah. I found it very fascinating and just like when they have like the weddings where they have from the nose to the ear and all the, the very ornate it's just it's really beautiful yeah it's, it's so beautiful like like I'm like oh it's like I've always been wanted to get invited to an Indian wedding just to look at everything because it's just like it looks so colorful and and like festive yeah yeah it does it's it's so stunning I mean my cousin got married last year and it was just oh it's just so beautiful I don't think anything compares to an Indian wedding I know it's like unfortunately every everybody that I know that is Indian has been is married already so I'm, <laughs> it's like when I they, they marry and then they made me I'm like damn it <laughs> if I knew you before we got married I could have invited you to our wedding we got married in Goa and it was really um really? like so vibrant and colorful yeah oh, how how long did it last it the wedding it was I think over three days oh yeah it was over three days but it was like constant for those three days it so was amazing so you have like family in Goa? Um, well, my mum and dad moved. We don't have any uh, historical family connection to Goa, but my mum and dad, I think my dad decided when he was about 19, he went there and he decided that he wanted to retire there. So they moved out there about 11 or 12 years ago, maybe slightly longer. And they, yeah, so they live there now. And they're there in the most of the winter and then they come here for a few months in the summer. So they kind of got it good. That's nice. And I, I I know you went to visit just like a little, like a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, which is, it, it, you know, you sent me some pictures and it was so beautiful. It is. It's, 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 so it's just amazing. We took the kids as well because we haven't taken them since they were toddlers and they just got so much out of it. And it's just, it's kind of like a paradise in oh. some ways, like a paradise. <laughs> And I think because my parents are there, it also feels like home. It's like a second home. And they just completely settled in literally within two days and they didn't want to leave. And we didn't want to leave either, to be honest. It was so gorgeous. Oh, I love that. How's the weather there? Is it like really like hot? Yeah, well, winter is when you go because that's their (laughs) cool time. But um, there was a heat wave. So it's normally hot anyway at this time of year. It's like 30 degrees. I know you use... Fahrenheit (laughs) but it was 38 when we were there this time so it was super hot but I think you just get used to it don't you and you just you know you can only go out in the morning in the evening and you just make the most of it and Uh, I have I have such an allergy to heat like I literally like my body's allergic to heat even though I I come from a, a, a warm place like you know a hot place uh, last time that I went back home, I literally had a allergic reaction that my body just blows up. It's really horrible. Oh, that sounds really unpleasant. Yeah, I know. Well, isn't it? 
Yeah, I just I don't understand what happened. So um, moving back, like, so how did your personal jewelry journey started? So as a child, I used to <clears throat> jewelry out of I got really into in the 90s, there was a trend for like making friendships bracelets out of embroidery thread. And I used once I learned how to do it, I would pretty obsessively sit there and do it for hours and hours and hours. And when we went on, we used to go on long car journeys all the time, like to weddings or to see relatives. And I would just safety pin the friendship bracelet onto the back of the car seat in front of me. And I would sit there doing it for the whole journey. And that's kind of my earliest memory of making anything, um, you know, for the body. Um, And then but I didn't ever, I think I stopped that at some point and I didn't really think about it again. Um, and then I went to, I did an art foundation after, so after A-level here, if you want to do a creative degree, then you would do an art foundation first. And the one that, um, the course that I went on, they gave you really open brief projects. So you could interpret the project any way that you wanted to, and you could use any materials, or you could draw, you could, you know, you could do something in 3D or textiles. And all of the stuff that I was making was really three-dimensional, really ornate and really detailed. Like I would, I I think the first project that I did was I used rubber tubing and wires and I kind of interwove them together and pierced holes into them and made these kind of I don't know what how you could describe them. They looked like, do you know Ernst Haeckel? No, what is that? A German artist. And I don't know from exactly what decade, but they're quite old. And he would do these kind of bizarre drawings and prints of kind of like, they almost look like alien creatures. You know, like the kind of creatures that you'd get in the deep sea that are just really bizarre and I think a lot of his were made up, but that's the kind of stuff that I was making. It was just quite, um, didn't necessarily look like anything. It wasn't anything realistic, but yeah, it was just very detailed. And how did that, like, what what was the, how do you find that inspiration? Where did they came out of? I don't know. And I still don't know now today <laughs> what my, when people say, what's your inspiration? I can't pinpoint it on anything. I literally just work with the material and just do whatever it feels right to do mm-hmm. I kind of feel my way through it um and my tutor on my art foundation she she said to me because uh, I wanted to do fashion and textiles or one or the other and she said to me you really should do jewelry and I didn't even know jewelry was a thing that you could do I didn't know that there was a course I didn't know that contemporary jewelry existed yeah. um but I started to spend some time in the metalworking workshop and I felt really, I just felt like I belonged there and I really loved it. And I just carried on making stuff. Um, and then I applied to go to the jewellery school in Birmingham to do my degree. So I did a jewellery and silversmithing degree there. So. And how was that? Yeah, that's how I started out. How's that process of like, in school like what like what was the classes like how what what were the basics of that course so that it was a three-year degree and um I would say it was a mixture of design concept and 
technical skill. But to be honest with you, I would say, and I think this is unfortunately the case for a lot of jewellery degrees now, and just technical degrees in general, is that you learn the basics. We were taught the basics. We were taught, for, we had forging workshops, we had saw piercing and soldering and all of these different things, but we we weren't necessarily encouraged to work in metal. We were encouraged to work in whatever material. So a lot of people made things out of plastic or resin or um, even some of them textiles or knitted wires or like so, so many different um, materials. And our tutor, the head of the course was, um, or one of our tutors was, more of a concept jeweler herself so and her background was art history so um yeah I think we were encouraged to explore different materials but I knew that I loved metal and I knew that I wanted to work in metal so I just had to focus on that and luckily one of our teachers who was absolutely incredibly skilled with metal he was a silversmith and he'd been in the jewelry school since he was 16 and he oh. was in his 70s when he was teaching us oh and my gosh. he was so he could literally make anything anything that you drew and you weren't sure how to make you would just take the drawing to him and he would show you how to make it and nothing was too difficult he'd really spend the time with you um like he'd say one thing I made I wasn't sure how to put these two components together and he was like right let's just go down to the basement and we can make a screw thread and we can use the lathe and he just showed me how to use a lathe and so that was the best thing I think that I got technically out of the degree but I do really value the design we were we were really told to explore our unique voices and try and develop unique work and not to look at other jewelry necessarily but to you know try and find inspiration in other places and to develop our designs and develop sketchbooks so that they were you know all of our sketchbooks looked really different even mine were all loose loose sheets and each one kind of related to the one before but it was almost like a story like a storybook of visuals in a way so yeah, that was also invaluable, I think. And that's probably something you couldn't get from on a job if yeah. you were just working as an apprentice or something. But I think... Yeah, because that, like you you got the chance to like really explore different yeah. techniques. And, that, and having that professor sounds like it was very lucky for you yeah. to have. Because not yeah. everybody will be like, Oh, you want to do this? Let's try this. And and that's like that that will that help you be like completely think outside the box yeah. and just try new things. That's that's yeah. very I, I consider you very lucky to have that as a, yeah. a professor. I feel, I feel very lucky to have met him. And he would stay till you at university until the building closed. Cause I would I would often be well, I'd sometimes be the last one in the workshop if I was trying to doing something that needed machinery. I would, I remember one night I was there drilling these tiny, tiny holes through this really thick silver. And it took so long because the, the drill bits were so small, they could break really easily. So you had to go really slowly. And it took me, I, I think I was there for two or three nights till quite late. And he just stayed with me and would you know be helping other you know there'd be other students around as well and he would just stay there and be helping us all and 
yeah it was so it was so great and he retired the same year that we graduated so so you got him on the right time (laughs) oh that is that that's that's a gift for sure I I think that it's like I love those professors that stayed with us and like really like brought the best of us um so one of the things that I love about your work and 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 that it's like a like uh what's the word uh you know enigma to me is the like Indian culture is just so ornate is so filled with like textures and beading and all that and then your work is so minimalist and so uh, modern and so geometric and I there's something about it that I absolutely love but like you still have that color story in a way in your work that I think like has like a tied into it but how did that happen (laughs) so I I think being exposed to Indian clothing and culture and jewelry from a really young age meant that I've always been really drawn to detail and I've been quite I can focus a lot on detail and I think even when something in a way when you're doing something that is super clean and really minimal I almost think it's the attention to detail is almost more important because if you anything that you add has to work there's no room for kind of just embellishing something or putting something on if it doesn't work because your eye can see straight away so I think that's I think it's informed me in a way of just um, having an eye for precision and proportion and um, I don't know I feel like it's quite intuitive but I've always been drawn to really I don't like clutter in general I don't like um things being overdone I think the hardest things are often the simplest things um but the one thing that I will I really love and I'm looking to explore and bring more into my work this year is the color like you say I've always loved color and I want to bring in more bold and strong colors more saturated colors and put them together and place them together and see what happens with that because yeah I think the also the more I've been over to India the more it's informed I've been more aware of it I think when you grow up with it you don't really think about it but it's the one thing that's so noticeable is when you're in India and you come back over here everything looks so drab and so so monotonous and kind of dull and it's like the vibrancy and the joy and the color has has kind of gone and it would be a really nice uh way to yeah bring that love I have for color into my work because I feel like I have that in clothing maybe and other things but I don't I haven't always necessarily brought that into my work so much I've gone for more muted tones but I yeah I I think I think you have had like this like like I I have in my head every time that I think of your work there's like this green tourmaline ring with the 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 German cutting inside like that's like the first 
thing that come into my head. It's just like that ring. It's like I see you, I, I think of you, and I see that ring. And it's like, and I feel like that color is just like so saturated and so beautiful. And I do think you you do have some good color in your work. You know, like you do have like some metal pieces and and just like all metal, and you have some neutrals, but you do have like little pops of color that just come out. Yeah, yeah, I do. I think they're just not as saturated as I would like. So I'd like to explore that a little bit more. I'm all for it. I'm and all for it. Opals. I've I've recently just fallen in love with opals the last couple of years, and I've never really liked opals before. But um, yeah, I'm really I'd really love to work with it with well, some opals. Opals year. are my favorite, so you know. <laughs> I know. I know. They're 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 they have a special place in my heart. Yeah. Yes, that's so, so I it's like going, you know, like sorry, the going back to school. Um like once you graduated, how did the journey to create your own brand happen? Um, I think it happened quite slowly and quite organically. I when I graduated, I think I was so I loved the ability to explore and I knew that when I was on my degree I was really aware that I didn't have to make things that were in any way practical or wearable and I could make completely off the scale kind of pieces that I could explore and just do what I wanted to do and so I used that opportunity to do that but then when I finished my degree I knew that I wanted to make pieces that people could wear so I As soon as I finished, I went and worked with a jeweler who has a small gallery in a town nearby. And I worked part time for him while I was starting to do my own work. And I started applying for exhibitions and doing a few exhibitions at that time. Um, and I think the work was almost the opposite of the work that I was doing for my degree. I almost pared back too much and went a bit too, I think it was much more commercial than I probably wanted to necessarily be. I was making think pieces, I think I was overthinking it and making pieces that I thought people wanted to be, wanted to wear. Mm -hmm. um, and I did that for about four or five years. And meanwhile, I was applying to do Goldsmiths Fair every year and I didn't get in because they offer a graduate place for for five years after you've graduated, you can get a graduate place oh. um, at the fair and you can get free stand and support. And I think I applied four times and I was rejected every time. And I didn't know why, because I thought I was applying with pieces that were gold and they had stones and I thought that's what they were looking for. And I asked for some feedback the final time because I said, I, I just wrote to them and said, I've only got one year left that I can apply. Um, I know you don't normally give feedback, but would it be possible? And she just, um, they wrote a really lovely letter back and they just said, you know, we're looking for, for you to have your own point of view and your own style and your own voice. So I really pushed myself that year to try and do that. And I produced work that was really different from what I was doing before. And it was definitely finding my voice. I was making really big pieces um, and working in different materials. I was using oxidized silver and making quite ornate pieces um, in terms of surface decoration, but they were still quite clean and I was incorporating much more interesting stones. I went um, I went to a few trade shows and found some really great 
stone dealers. And so, yeah, I photographed the work and I got in the next year. So I was really pleased about that. That's awesome. Yeah. And I just carried on from there. I just carried on going deeper into it and trying new techniques, always learning. That's great. So how many times have you done Goldsmith? I think I I think 10 times. Oh, wow. 10 times. Yeah. That's incredible. And yet you look like you're 15. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, I don't get me close up. (laughs) You look so young. You look so young that that's that's amazing and then after after the first time it's like you've really honed down onto your voice in such a great way and that's like what I love about your work that it has like such a specific voice and it's like the the detail to do like people think that making something modern or clean it's like easy but it's so like you said earlier it's like because you're going to see any imperfection and like you cannot see anything like your work is like so insanely perfect that it's like it it, it just like makes me want to cry that it's like first of all the patience that you have to create something like that is very admirable second is just absolutely stunning how do you how do you have that patience because it's like it's something that I could never like I will be like this is not perfect you know like I, I remember when I went to school like I was like trying to make a dart mm-hmm. and in the dart like the teacher like you have she had a ruler and like she will look at the dart and it was like not perfect she's like and, and she had this tiny little voice and she's like I'm sorry you have to do it again oh. and I did it for it was like three weeks and I couldn't get that freaking dart straight and I just wanted to just throw that bodice out of the window that sounds horrible it was horrible it was one dart that's the thing it's like it's the saddest thing it was one dart and it just just, there was like always like one stitch that will decide to go somewhere else and it's like yeah so how like how do you have that patience because I do not have it I don't I don't know if I would call it patience. I think um, once I get into something, I think I just lose track of, I lose all sense of time and place. And I get really, really in intensely focused on something and I can just do it. I, I, I think it's kind of like being... I don't know I just kind of get zoned out and just get really focused on something and I don't it to me it's not like I'm trying to be patient because I'm not fighting against anything I just um I just keep going because I just I just love it I've I've always done things that have been that take a lot of time I've I've never been able to even if I try and I do try now sometimes I have to kind of say to myself I think a lot of jewelers have this issue with being perfectionists and I I fight it all the time because I know it's not a good thing um and to you know be satisfied once you know something is, is good and not to overdo it and not to look for perfection um but yeah I just like doing things that are quite time consuming and I think I guess you're I'm because I'm considering things along the way as well I'm kind of trying to work out does this work does this work and 
I think it gives you more, more of a feel for what you're making when you're spending more time on it. You're kind of turning it around, seeing if the proportions fit. I'll take a bit more off if it doesn't. And with metalwork, you can do that because it is quite a slow process. It's a hard material. It takes a long time to to change something, to manipulate the material too. Yeah, no, for sure. And how did you like found when you find your voice I feel that you also found German precision like how did that marriage like started I think I already knew the types of I had a feel for the types of shapes that I liked and the kind of looks of pieces that I liked and I knew that I liked things that were quite simple shapes quite architectural um quite geometric and then I went to in Organta, which is a huge trade show in Munich. Yeah, like big, one day I will go there. <laughs> to go. It's a big jewelry show and they have it's massive and they have stone dealers from all over Europe and all over the world come and there are two big stone halls and I just walked through them and found some stone dealers that were doing something really different that I'd never seen before at British trade shows, which were more traditional types of cuts. And I just fell in love with them. And I love the fact that they were made in their studio so they could talk about the stones. They really knew what they, they would source the stones from the mine. They really were so knowledgeable, knowledgeable about it and really passionate about it as well. And um, so I connected with, a couple of stone dealers there and just started working with them and their work just fit in with my work really well and I think there weren't really that many jewelers working with those types of stones then either so yeah I don't know it was like a really good discovery at, oh. at, at the right time yeah I think so I, I like again you know it's just like that green tourmaline it's like it's like tattooed on my brain because I love it so much. It's like on my jewelry wish list since the first time I saw it. Oh, <laughs> it's, that it's, was the Munsteiner one, was it? Huh? Was that the Munsteiner stone? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I believe so. I don't I don't know. It's like it's like your work is always like very striking to me and it, it makes me very, very happy. Um, so how do you see going forward with your work? I this year for the first time la last year I was although I feel like since COVID really I've been really busy with commissions which I do really love I love working with people and making pieces for people um, and the collaboration that happens there as well but while I've been working on those commissions I haven't really had time to develop my own work that much it, I think it develops along with the commission sometimes but I haven't really explored that properly and I haven't had a set amount of time where I've sat down and developed designs and I've done sketches but um yeah I haven't really explored that much so this year I decided that I'm going to make time and I spent the first three well up till now really I've spent the first three months of the year at my workbench carving wax and I've, I've completely fallen in love with it I've never worked with wax before oh really everything has been uh a manufacturer like you know uh 
uh, what's the word I cannot think directly of it. In metal I, yeah. I've just worked I've just worked directly in metal and even when I've made mock-ups of pieces or made um tried to figure out designs I've always made mock-ups in silver first before I make them in gold and one thing that I've always found really frustrating when you're talking about patience, one thing I find really frustrating with jewellery is that when you're working with metal, it's such a slow process. It takes a long time to manipulate the material, to cut away the material, to solder, to finish. And it, it means that the design process, it I feel like you can't explore it necessarily as quickly or as much as you would like to. Um, I do a lot of drawing and sketches as well, but it's not the same as working in 3D. My, I still feel like I need the three-dimensional element to really get my head around things properly. Um, so a couple of commissions last year meant kind of led me to doing parts of components of pieces through wax carving and then casting. And I really enjoyed it. And I thought, well, I'm just going to buy myself a couple of big blocks of wax and just start carving. Because one thing I always think is, is, you know, if you're an artist, you're not limited by um, the cost of, well, I know there's cost of material, but not huge cost, like with metal. You you can literally just paint and paint and paint however many canvases you want to, and you can explore different ideas and themes, and you're not limited, and it's really free. And I feel like wax kind of gives you that same thing as well you can you can do do it quickly you can quickly see how something's going to look you can make things more precise you can really explore the three-dimensionality of the piece as well so yeah I've been doing that and I love it I love I it so I love much. it too it's yeah. like <laughs> it's like I, I, I just love the fact that you're like discovering like a new medium that you haven't worked before and then you're like really into it it's like very exciting to me yeah, it's really exciting to me. I just kind of feel like I've got those, you know, when you start something new and you've not tried it before and usually in a new material, like a new hobby or something. Um, but I'm really loving it and I am I feel like it's much more free and I feel like I'm designing much more interesting pieces than if I was just designing on paper and I can see a kind of line of development, like a new story and the pieces are quite different in some ways to what I've been doing up till now but I think you can still tell that they're my pieces because they still have the similar kind of uh, cleanness to them and simplicity to them but I'm looking at more rounded forms and um, more kind of bulbous forms in a way as well I really like but also <laughs> quite clean lines but rounded and um slightly more complex too I don't know it's really fun. It's like building it's like building lots of different elements together oh my really god I'm, I'm so excited I want to see it when, so when it's gonna launch when do you think look you can see my little box of waxes I know no one else can see them but Ooh, oh my gosh she has a like 12 or 15 pieces of rings there right yeah, I've got 10 here. And my aim was to fill this whole box before um, in three months. But actually, even wax carving is not super, super, super fast. So I've, but I've got 10 and I'm really happy and I'm going to keep doing keep doing more whenever I get time. I can just get to oh, it. I'm very excited and I hope I get first dips on the launch. 
<laughs> I get the first views on the launch on the um, that's I'm very very excited I cannot wait to I'm see it I'm hoping to launch in September this year I've decided to not give myself a suit a stupidly short um deadline just to give myself the space to be able to explore the the designs and the techniques and to be able to kind of put everything together well I'm here whenever you're ready you know just just put it out there you know <laughs> first um so uh can you uh, I know that you've been working along with the goldsmith a lot and you've had like a great relationship can you tell me um the projects that you're working with them yeah so I'm doing a couple of things with them at the moment. One of them is, um, so last, the year before last, the I'd been speaking to the Goldsmiths a little bit, the company a little bit about, um, about changes that they, about whether they've been thinking about changes in terms of bringing in a more diverse talent into the fair And also just with in the com within the company in general, I've, it's it's a big subject, and I kind of felt a little bit like, am I, who am I to talk to a massive company about these really big important changes? But this, um, so they launched, I think, following talk, discussions with a number of different makers and a number of different things that had that had sort of started the ball rolling within the company. Um, they decided to put out a call for um, a new project, which they call the Global Majority Fund, which is um, a fund for five different projects, which they would like global majority um, people within the jewelry industry to apply with a project idea. Um, and then they would fund the projects that they thought were suitable And the whole idea of this was to um, widen the diversity and the access to jewelers or makers or designers of colour within the UK and help to uplift people into this into this industry that wouldn't necessarily normally have the access to it. So um, I applied for one to do one of the projects and. Um, my idea was for a was a fund for women specifically women who have had children who have had to take a career break I think there's a lot of funding available for people at the beginning of their careers or when they first graduate and for new makers but there's so little for specifically mid-career but also even more specifically for people who have gone back to work after having children. I've seen so many amazing designers who have had really good careers and then had children and then just not gone back to it. Often, I think, for financial reasons, but maybe for other reasons too. I think it's a hard industry to um, make a good living at, but especially if you've got those financial constraints and then going back after having children It's just really, really difficult. There are so many barriers. And I think there's even more barriers for women of color as well. So that was my, um, so my project was for 
one person to be able to have access to mentoring and to a grant and to business coaching and financial coaching because I think often those things just in general as craftspeople particularly if we've done some kind of an art degree we just have never had access to those things so I thought that that would be I, I basically just thought, what would I want if I got this, if I got this funding and put together exactly what I would want? So, yeah, we're kind of midway through the project now and it's going really well. Um, so I'm excited. Oh, I, I love that. And I think it's so important for because like I feel that um, women, I don't have children, so I cannot say much about that. But I I've, I know many women that have children and and especially when they have their own business or they have their own lines and stuff. And once they have children, they have to like step back a little bit and just uh, stop their projects to take care of their kids, which is very admirable. And I really support every woman that wants to do that. But I I, I feel like sometimes they, when the kids are uh, bigger or they're out of school, like they feel a little lost. Like that's yeah. something that I've heard so many times from women And I think that that will be such a that's such a great way for them to bring them back into the world. And then not only that is like I feel like a lot of people were like once they're a mother, they're like, oh, well, you know, well, you're a mom. Like and if they have a gap, it's like they, it's so much harder for them to get to get the opportunities. Yeah. yeah. You know? I, once I I've got two children who are 10 and seven. And when I first had them, I. I continued with my work in the UK we get nine months of maternity leave which what does that feel like <laughs> it doesn't even feel like that much but <laughs> I know I know it's completely good to you nine, nine months was a long enough break that it's uh, it's difficult to get back into it after that but I did continue and I carried on doing the shows but it's so so difficult and it almost feels like you're starting again in some ways I think and that's it makes it especially hard to find your feet and to reconnect with like institutions or shows or customers that you had before because you feel like you've had such a big gap mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important to be able to continue if you want to if you want to stay in that and and also just to grow because for if you you know for most people if they don't have children then usually your 30s at the time when you've found your footing in your career and you can really push it but if you've had that break you feel like you've taken 10 steps back yeah and I think it's really vital to especially for women to be able to to you know continue to do that yeah thing that Sorry. And especially like after the pandemic, a lot of women have to stop working to be, you know, take care of the kids. And it's, it was like there was right now there's like a percentage of women that hasn't gone back to the workforce. And um, and I, I really love that you're doing that. I really think that it's really important for those women to be able to get their their like work back and be able to fulfill their their goals. Yeah, yeah. And also I often think about for your kids or for my kids what what they see me doing and what effect that has on them. And I love my work and I want them to see me doing the thing that I really value. And I want them to also 
push and do the thing that they really love and not feel like they would have to, you know, like they would have to stop. It It breaks my heart to think that they would have to stop doing that thing that they really love, especially I think if you're in a creative career, it's, it's, it's so much a part of you, what you're building and what you're making. For sure. 100%. I love that. And and so are you going to, is it going to be like a, like an annual thing uh, with Goldsmith's company, like uh, a new person every year or what's, how's that going to work? Well, I think that we'll have to wait until the first year is finished, which will be kind of the middle of this year when all the projects have been finished and completed. And then I guess they'll evaluate and see whether they think they've been successful, whether they would like to continue. I mean, it would be amazing to be able to even offer that because obviously this year we could only offer this particular project to one participant. So it would be really great to be able to spread that over more people but yeah it's out of my hands so I don't know I I, well, I, I hope so I hope the so. Goldsmith yeah. company listen to us yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I asked the listeners to to ask a question to the next guest and um somebody asked me what's your favorite jewelry to wear as a you know you as a maker like what do you wear on a daily basis as an item yeah. um rings I love rings because you see them yes <laughs> yeah and um I love the fact that they can be really colorful um my my goal I mean I think since I had kids because I couldn't wear jewelry when they were little that much um I didn't wear so much but my goal is to just have hands full of massive rings so at the moment I have staple rings that I wear all the time but I love that I I'm a ring wearer too like that's my favorite if I have to pick a piece of jewelry that I love the most it's again same thing is because I can see it I can feel it it's just like right there and I and like earrings I I love earrings and necklaces yes but I cannot see them people can see them not oh, exactly. me. <laughs> yeah yeah rings and maybe bracelets too because I like that jangle that they make and yeah yeah. I know I have like I oh I I, I sleep uh, jewelers will kill me I'm I know but I I do have five bracelets that I that I never take off they're like completely soldered into my body <laughs> <laughs> um and besides I uh, be, before I started compulsory questions can you tell me a little bit about your sewing projects because like that's something that you know uh I think you started more seriously during the pandemic same as I and I did like the 100 skirt project <laughs> that I did like that's amazing like 100 skirts um but I know that you have your it's like tangerine seams is it right yeah, Instagram that. page um so like what's what how did that start with you and just making your own clothing it started just before I had my older daughter, my mother-in-law sews and she's always sewed her clothes. And the reason that she started sewing was because it was just more affordable for her than for buying than buying clothes at the time. And she started sewing when she was a teenager. And one day she just said, Would do you want me to teach you? Would you like me to teach you? 
And so she, we spent an afternoon together and I bought a sewing pattern. I went out to the shop with her and bought a sewing pattern to make a dress. And I made the dress and I... I just thought this is a lot easier than I thought it would be. And she said to me, because she always says I'm not creative. And that I always find that really sad because I think everyone's creative in some way. I think you just have to find your thing. Um, but she is massively creative. And she said to me, you know, just think of a sewing pattern as a recipe. It's just a series of steps and you just do what the step tells you to do. And that's it. That's all you have to do. Um, so I, I started, but... Then after my daughter was born, I did an evening course in sewing um, and I learned all of the basics. And I think for me, I've always wanted to, sewing patterns have never been what exactly what I want to make. I, I kind of design something and have an idea of what I want to make. And then I find the closest thing to that that I can. And then I just alter it to make it whatever I want. And yeah, I just, there's a huge sewing community on Instagram and I just and there are some amazing indie pattern designers as well and I just got really really into it and I love, love the whole um the fact that you can choose exactly the type of fabric you want you can make it drape the way you want you can have you can have it you know you can cut it the way you want it's made for your body there's just so much positive and then just the absolute joy of making it as well I just love everything about it and I think it fulfills my not having done textiles or fashion at university because actually I realized that was probably completely the wrong degree for me because I'm much more of a 3D person and working fabrics very different but I'm learning and I'm getting there and I still do classes every now and then and try and kind of get better with my skills um but yeah, just really, it's just really fun. I love it. I, you know, I, I went to school for fashion and I did clothing. I hated pattern making, hated it with passion because it was, I, I was not good at it. But like, there was something that I really enjoy about sewing, but like, I'm not a great sewer either. It's like, I just love to put fabrics together and like, but like, um, just I, I got a brand new machine like during the pandemic and I was just like sewing and I just got like really just making simple things but it just brought like another love for sewing with me but then you make that quilted you know like piece and I was like no I, I'm gonna retire <laughs> that was honestly I felt like I wanted to throw that in the bin quite a few times and I did lose my patience a bit with that because so it was months of work to make this quilted coat and it's a reversible quilted coat as well yeah, I know it was crazy it was, it was all hand bound edges um it was bias ba bias band all along the edge and it was all done by hand because I chose a really awkward fabric to bind it with um and I was just I took it on the train I would just do it whenever I had spare time I would just take my needle with me and just carry on with it but oh, um god I, I I when I saw it my brain just like like there was like a short secret for like a second and I was like how did you make and I messaged you and I'm like how do you make that it was crazy I I did a quilt during mm -hmm. the pandemic with all the fabrics of the skirts that I did and um I posted on the stories the other day because there was like a memory uh, on like on Instagram it's like oh here's the memory I'm like oh the quilt and and of course, the first quilt that I decided to make was a king size quilt because why not? 
exactly choose the most difficult thing yeah and I tried to quilt it myself I'm like let's try it and the machine was like girl you're not going anywhere with this so um I found a quilting place like really close um to me and they were able to do it and it was absolutely stunning like they did the binding and everything like I just did the edging and it was it's gorgeous and I use it every day and it, it I, every time that I see it I feel very satisfied but I'm like yes I did it it's beautiful but I will never ever yeah. <laughs> like, I will and never I, try to do it like I will send it to them to be quilt but yeah. uh but I would like to make a a twin size bed quilt next time like, they're so the awkward thing about quilts is they're so big there's so much volume and weight it's so it's actually quite physically hard to handle when you're on the machine because yeah. if you don't have an industrial mis- machine you've just got like a home sewing machine is you need a lot of space and it's like awkward to move it around and yeah it's not I I'm not I don't think I can face doing another quilt for a while no I I love that quilting machine though it just feels so satisfying like I just like I would love to have one in my house but it's like a whole table of but like there's this artist um that I absolutely love her name is Bissa Butler I don't know if you ever heard of her she does this beautiful beautiful uh, they look if you see them from far they might they look like paintings and it's just like this like beautiful just faces or just like like it's just like usually it's like people that she makes and but when you look close it's all quilted and uh, it's absolutely insane like I I learned uh from her from another podcast like I, I I heard about her and I started following her on Instagram and I and I saw her work in Miami at a museum in Miami and the detail that those pieces have I have to show you pictures because it's absolutely oh my god it's 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 to die for like I just I I, I I'm like I want to I just want to see her make the work it's such, a, it's such a skill isn't it I just think it's such an art form that is really underappreciated and really um, not seen much. Like you don't really see contemporary quilt making. Mm-mm. Yeah, I know. I'm, I I I enjoy I enjoy the process, but it was very very hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, let's let's go to the compulsory questions. <laughs> you know, we deviated a little bit, but it's it's okay. It's it's our time. We can do whatever we want. Yeah. Um, so what's your favorite gemstone? I'm gonna say lapis. Mm. And I what is that? The color. I think the color is probably my favorite color in the world. It's like cobalt like perfect cobalt blue with the little flecks of gold I love the flecks of gold so gorgeous and it's so um it's like a smooth matte um you don't get any translucency light reflection yeah yeah I I just think it's gorgeous and I think it's really nice also combined with cut colored stones I love it with emeralds especially it's so like they work really nice together blue that that shade of blue with green they do um what's your favorite metal gold (laughs) (laughs) what carrot um I work in 18 so I'm gonna say 18 because I just love the color of it 
I used to work in 22 a lot because that's the color of Indian gold. And I went through a phase of recycling my family's kind of jewelry that they wanted to get rid of. Oh, and (laughs) yeah, they weren't like super amazing pieces, but they were just stuff that they just like plain bangles and things that they didn't really like. So I melted those down and bought, bought the gold off them and made a whole collection with those which but the the color is very rich and I yeah I prefer 18 now yeah love that um we talk about wax carving but what's your favorite technique or technique or tool tool um I would have to say the vernier gauge which is like a bit of an obscure one but I use it do you know what a vernier gauge is it's a tool that you use for measuring it's got a face like a clock Oh, yes. Yes. And because it's the most precise, it's it's the best tool for measuring really precise sizing and detail. And I use it, I have to use it all the time for my work. And yeah, so sounds, I, couldn't live without it. I could not live without it. Sounds about right, for sure. <laughs> With knowing your work. Um, what's, uh, what's your favorite thing to listen while you work? I either work in total silence. Really? Yeah. Um, if it's work that involves thinking, then I have to, I can't have noise on. But if I'm wax carving or doing any kind of making, I listen to podcasts mostly. Mm. Good, 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 good. Uh, I cannot work on like silence. Like right now my house is quiet and I'm like, I need music, but because I'm talking to you, like it's fine, yeah. but it's just like I don't I don't like silence at all. Um, what's your favorite artist? Doesn't need to be jewelry, it can be anything. Somebody that you just pops mm. in your head. I recently found a really good podcast about art called Talk Art. And I discovered an artist on there called Jamie Holmes. He's an American uh like fine artist. And I just think his story and his work is incredible. I love it. But I'd say I've always loved George O'Keefe as well. So she's like my ultimate artist. Her colors, the shapes. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. I love that. Do you have any advice for future jewelry artists? Yeah, but this is not through experience of having done this thing. This is from experience, from not having done this thing and wishing that I'd done it. It's, um, I would say if you can work with, when you're first starting out, try and work for someone who is making jewellery, not necessarily even the kind of jewellery that you want to make, but something that's going to really up-level your technical skill. Because I think you just don't necessarily get those skills at university. I had to teach myself pretty much everything outside of the absolute basic metalworking. I've learned it all myself. And I think one even really good thing to do would be work for someone who does repairs, because I think you just learn so much through doing repairs. That's a really good advice. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, when can people find you? Um, so you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Shivani Chorvadia, which is S H I V A N I C H O R W A D I A. Um, and my website is the same. Um, I think that's 
everywhere. I'm not a massive social media person, but I know we're trying to make you, you know, be more active on social media. Trying to get better at Instagram. I'm getting better. Yes. I'm I'm Shivani, you're always a delight. I just can't, you know, you you have some like we can definitely talk forever. Like it's just you're so delightful. You have such a great personality and I hopefully I can see you when I go back to London. Yeah, I hope so. This year we'll make it happen. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thousand Facets is produced and edited by me. Please visit A Thousand Facets on Instagram to see photos of some of the things we spoke about during the interview. Music by Chris Keys. You can find him on Instagram at Chris underscore Keys underscore underscore. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much.